Welcome to episode 226 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I have a really fun and fascinating conversation today for you. And we're going to be talking about embracing failure with former rogue athlete and former rogue coach, Tennille Hoogland. She has an interesting background, starting out in synchronized swimming, finding her way to ITU and Ironman triathlon after that, and is now a coach and advocate for women in sports. And we're going to have a fascinating conversation, which ended up taking some twists and turns that I didn't expect, but I think you'll enjoy this. The main topic is embracing failure, but we get to so much more. So I'm going to get quickly to it and jump right in with Tennille. Here we go. Welcome, Tennille, to the Running Rogue podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Like, <laughs> ready a, to it's, talk. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting to have you. You're coming to me from Victoria, British Columbia, which is close to Vancouver, there in the Northwest. And but you also have a history here in Austin with Rogue, which is exciting. And we'll get to that in a second. I think we were we were talking offline. It's been nine years since I've seen you face to face in person, at least. And so it's good to actually reconnect this way. And I'm excited to talk about this topic with you. We're going to be talking about embracing failure. But before I get there, I wanted to first just talk about your background Grew up in Canada, obviously, but tell me more about your childhood and how you got into sport. Oh, wow. So I was a synchronized swimmer of all things. <laughs> so like I had the like the blue um, eyeshadow and the gel <laughs> in the hair and the bobby pins. And what a tough sport. Like, yeah, no doubt. It was how brutal. Do, how do you get into that? I don't even know. I think that I just love the water so much. And then somehow I got into a club and then I wanted to go to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> totally went like that. And so I, yeah, I started as a synchronized swimmer and um, little did I know or my parents know at all about synchronized swimming and the rigors of it. But I was training um, up, you know, 20 to 25, 30 hours a week when you put it all together of dry land training, um, in the water, figures, speed swimming, ballet, weight training. And so that was my life from when I was eight years old. And I quit when I was 17. Wow. Yeah. And That's intense. it was really intense and it wasn't such a great quit. Like it was actually really devastating. Um, for me, I was at the top of my sport when I was in British Columbia. And then I decided I, I needed to make a big move. And um, I had just graduated, I had started school early. So I graduated from grade 12. And had, um, yeah, I decided at the age of 16, I was going to leave my home and go and train in a different province. And um, so I did. And because I was had maxed out in the place that I was living, I needed more coaching. And, and I went there and that was the end of my career. <laughs> that 
move. <laughs> I Why? just, it fell, I fell apart. Um, it was a really hard move. Um, I didn't have the support structure around me. I didn't know how to adapt, like leaving your home. I was homesick. I, I guess it was homesickness. It was um, lack of support from the coaching staff that I was, um, that I had gone, like where I had gone to. Um, they just, it, I was nothing. I, like I, I just felt like I was nothing to them. And as a 16 year old that had just moved a province to just train and go after her dream of the Olympic games, it was just, I was just started going down into a really a bucket of sorrow and depression, I would say. And I was, yeah, it was really brutal. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this Goodness. is how it starts. Did not know that's where we were going to go. Yeah. Yeah. So how far at that point, how far were you from that Olympic goal? You know, was it close Mm -hmm. for you before that transition? Well, it's a really great question because I don't know how close I was um, to be, to be honest. I, I think looking in, I probably was far away if you were an expert at this kind of stuff. I didn't know that. I was in British Columbia. I was the best synchronized swimmer at that time in British Columbia. I was I was within you know, I was coming top 10 in nationally. Um but I was doing a big jump when I moved. It was a big jump in terms of um I wasn't a senior yet. I you know, you I was another rung on the ladder, so I would be a, a really good junior, but I wasn't a senior yet. And so I hadn't even tested the waters, but I felt, I think, so I don't know. I mean, and that's, that's so fascinating because that's exactly what took me to become the, like take on the next sport that I did, which was triathlon. But I didn't start that one until 10 years later. So I had to really heal on that journey. I went to university and, um, I tried to become a rower as a really great, like I made the varsity team within the first like go, um, because I just had the, the skill. I just had the all well, guts, I guess, just to like put everything to the line. Um, but then I remember I was sitting there in the, in the meeting where the coaches were just like, you know, so, you know, we're really intense. We train hard, but most importantly, we want you to have fun. And I was just like, well, then you're obviously not serious enough. <laughs> That's like seriously what I thought. It was in my first year of university thinking, well, it, it's not, sport isn't about having fun. And I was that gone. And I realized I wasn't in a good place um, to continue on sport right away. So that was why I took a 10 year hiatus. Man, there's so much to unpack here. So <laughs> when, so from eight to 17, when you quit, Mm-hmm. was most of that intensity and that desire to get better as a synchronized swimmer, was that self-driven or were there external forces? How did it play out for you? I would say it was all internal. It was, I was so motivated. I wanted to be the best. Absolutely. I wanted to get to those Olympics. Where did that shot, come from? Yeah. And I was ready to just do everything everything I could. And you did. And I did. And, oh man, 
now I look back and I just think, wow, like I overcame so much in that year. Like I, I worked a full-time job because I had to pay for my way. I mean, I did, my parents supported me with what they could for sure. Um, in every way they could financially do that. And, um, you know, over the phone, (laughs) but I still had to work, you know, I worked at a retail store, um, and, you know, would bus it for morning practices, 5.30 in the morning to try to get there would be, you know, like it was really what I tried to put together was pretty challenging. Yeah. It's a lot to handle in addition to moving away from home for the first time as a 16 year old. Yeah. I just, I just didn't have the, maybe the maturity. I just didn't know. And I, and then when I got there, I didn't have, I, I didn't have the kind of support I needed. There were people that absolutely supported me and I thank goodness for them, but I didn't know how to get to my sport. I didn't know how to access that. And it just wasn't fun. Hmm. I lost all fun. Yeah. What part of synchronized swimming is team versus individual? Well, it's such a weird uh, sport in that way because it is all individuals coming together as a team. And, um, like, so you can be, you know, you have your elements. Well, at that time, I don't, they didn't, they don't do it anymore, but you just, you have what you, we called figures and that was all individual. And that figure mark would go to and contribute toward the team score. Again, it's changed now, but, and now it's, it's reorchestrated. So it's all about the, you know, the performance aspect of synchro and I think they even changed the name to artistic swimming. And so they, um, you had to be on your game. You had to look a certain way. You had to, you know, one of the, the projects that we'll talk about now, um, like later on is the Resilient Athlete Project, which I've founded with a number of other women. And it was, it's about, you know, body, there's a big aspect of it is body image. And, you know, I remember being weighed in when I was, you know, 10 years old, trying to look a certain part and I was big boned. I am not like a big person, although I'm big comparatively speaking to the synchronized swimmers. So this, there was just so much part of this culture that I didn't even realize. Um, And it just happened. it, It almost feels like it just happens to you. You're just Im- immersed in this swimming pool of this culture that you just, you don't even, you can't even see through. It's like you got these foggy goggles on, like literally. <laughs> yeah. That sounds similar to conversations I've had with my sister, who was a gymnast and got very into it at an early age, talking about weigh-ins in front of the team and the coach mm-hmm. at very early ages that ultimately impacted her in negative, you know, negative ways later on. Was that part of it, a big part of you struggling in the sport at 16 and 17? Or was that just one of the many challenges? I think it just became one of the many challenges. I think I, if I really like, it's, it's interesting because when I talk about this with you, I'm like, oh my, there's a lot there to unpack because like, I haven't really, until you really dig into it, there's, um, I think what happened was I, there was so many layers to it. And by the time I had gotten to, you know, 17 years old, I just, 
And this is part of the, I, you know, the thing about embracing failure is like, I used to just clamp down and just be positive. Like that's all you have to do. Just clamp down, shove all those emotions down. Cause that's not what it's going to take. That's not what's going to get you where you need to go. That's what my attitude was <laughs> then. And for a long time afterward. And, um, and that is just how I got through it. So I don't think that many people even, you know, as we kind of un- uncover these stories, um, then that's what you start to realize is that you didn't even see it in, for what it was. You have like, we don't even know. And until we really start unpacking it, you don't even realize what's actually happening. So you buried a lot. Oh, I buried at it that all. time. Oh, I was good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which I think we often do. And one of the things in embracing failure is feeling the feelings. And I think naming them and talking about them and processing them. But but I think that's sort of a topic unto unto itself, but also this idea that you mentioned of perspective. You know, you were so close to it that you couldn't even really see or understand what was all going wrong. And I think that's another thing about failure is that sometimes it's about, you need the ability to zoom out, <laughs> but it's hard in a moment to zoom out. It's funny. I was asking myself this question in prepping for this was what's my biggest failure in life. I was asking myself that question uh, and yeah. it's a hard question to answer because anything that would fall in that realm for me from the past doesn't feel that big of a deal anymore, you know, 10 mm-hmm. years later, 20 years, 20 years later, because it, it all becomes a part of lessons learned through the years that I probably wouldn't change. And so it's actually interesting how, you know, failure with time starts to become smaller and smaller, the big things that you think about, but we'll get to all of that. I want to get back to this, which is, so when you quit, what were the feelings associated with that? Because that must have been devastating. You had this Olympic dream that you were letting go of because you just couldn't take it anymore. So how did you feel in that moment? I was, I was devastated for sure. I decided to do, um, I lacked my, I didn't know what else to be. I, I had la- I had just lost my identity entirely. I was one person. That's all I, all I knew. Everybody knew me as the synchronized swimmer. That was it. I likened it to, you know, people who have done a single job or, or, you know, have put their lives at, onto this job that they had and then they retire and fall apart. Cause what, who, who are they now? And when we have this singular identity and so I was lost. So then I became, I went to university and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm now a student um, because I'm not ready to have fun in another sport yet. (laughs) It's too serious. And I'm a very serious person. So I just decided to just like go all in to my studies. And, um, but that was a little bit confusing too. Um, so then I decided to do and try to specialize in sports psychology. So that's how I took it and tried to work through it. 
Um, but at that time, I mean, this is 20 years ago now or over 20 years ago. Um, I didn't, they didn't have real sports psychology, like it, what there wasn't programs in the way that they would have them now. It didn't look like that then. Um, when they did sports psychology there, you would take images, you know, um, like courses on body image and stuff like that, but not, you wouldn't talk about emotions. It was too soft, too soft skilled still. Yep. So you pour yourself in the studies. Did anything, was there anything in your mind looking back destructive about how you dealt with that and processed it? Or was it just channeling it into something else, channeling that energy into something else? Yeah. So I think like the theme of my life up until recently was, um, and I say recently, I'd say the past, like, like maybe five to eight years ago, um, everything I just strove, like I just, everything was the next goal. It was just the next goal. It was just, what could I next be good at? Where could I prove that I was good enough? And where was, because, you know, we, you know, this embracing failure is like, okay, well, what is failure defined as is like a lack of success. And I feel like the destructive part, I mean, I, I've had a great life like, don't get me wrong. Like it's been phenomenal, but I never felt like I was enough. So I had to keep striving. And if we think about what is excellence, like as sport people, what do we think of excellence? We think of podiums. We think of the Olympic games. We think of people making it to the top. We think of like everything that is that glory, (laughs) you know, that moment, that pinnacle winning, yeah, winning, crossing that line with both arms up. Um, you know, that's the images that I had always conjured up in my head. And then when I would get there, finally, I, I would be enough and people that love me would know that I love them and I was worthy. That's how I really defined it. And I took that into um, everything. So destructive or not, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of like how I just was living my life. And in everything and what that, that way of being, that way of being was like served me really well. Cause I did really amazing things right. <laughs> and I was, you know, I did really well in my triathlon career, you know, um, which that started when I was 27 and I uh, began and it still was because I had unfinished business. Like literally I still wanted to go to the Olympics. <laughs> okay, well, that didn't work. The synchro didn't work, but maybe I'm good enough to be uh, a triathlete. I could swim. So it was school first, then triathlon. That's right. Just pouring your energy and focus into something else, the next thing. Well, it was kind of. So I did my school and I got my degree and then I um, did a master's actually. So there was a big chunk of time there. So I did an undergrad in um, psychology. I did a master's in public administration. I moved to Argentina. I did a a project there. Um, I came back and I then started working for the federal government in Canada. And I ended up, I moved around a lot there within the federal government. And I ended up at the... um, being a senior planner for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games Secretariat. So for the Olympics, the government aspect of it, not the organizing committee. 
And it was there that this dream was completely reignited. And I just realized I had unfinished business and I needed to go back into sport and I just needed to choose a different one. So I had been biking and running at that time. So I might as well do that. <laughs> and you had the oh, swimming down. You had the swimming down. I had the swimming. I knew I could get back there. And and it was true. And, and so I became one of the best swim bikers. But darn it for that run. That run was just not, uh, wasn't going to come very easily to me. And that's why I actually um, came down to Austin, Texas. And that's why I ended up. So the short story there is I was working for the federal government, you know, full time, intense job. I mean, we had an Olympics to plan. And I was a senior planner there. So some responsibility. And then I um, just started whittling down my hours and they supported me, which was phenomenal. So I went from, you know, a 40 hour or 40 plus work week and then to a 30 hour, then it became a 20 hour. And then it was, I'm going to leave now and follow my dream and move to Austin, Texas. And that's exactly what I did. I sold everything I owned and I moved to Austin, Texas with my little black Honda Civic. And in Austin, I met the community of Rogue and um, fell in love with it and was really well supported in Austin. Um, and my coach was there as well. And so I began the journey again of going after the Olympics. The only problem was that I, when, as soon as I arrived, I learned that I had labral tears in both hips. So that puts a little bit of a damper on your running. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I needed to improve greatly. So, um, yeah, but through again, phenomenal support in Austin, Texas, like I owe, and the, again, because of Rogue, you know, the, the store there, you know, they had that, um, or they still do probably like have this amazing space that you could stretch and do stuff. And I would just hang out there and then I would be around people like you or, you know, Allison and, you know, Allison would go and she would run 20 K and then she would pick me up and then run another 10. <laughs> right. But that would be, that would, that would be the community that I was in. And I started surrounding myself with athletes and, um, and really great care providers. And so that was the beginning of a, my triathlon immersion and trying to become the best that I could be there. And then came the lessons, (laughs) (laughs) right? Give us a little bit on how that career as a triathlete went what were the highlights well I think the highlights of it is that is that I did it I just I just didn't take no for an answer so I started again you know at wanting to go to the Olympics I tried to get my run time down I really battled with injury I battled with not really knowing how to do it um and so I didn't get the, although I was one of the top in Canada for swim bike, like I could, I won Pan American Cups, like, you know, I did it, but I couldn't have the runtime down that they wanted. And at that time, they didn't think about team either. Um, so then I couldn't even be like the domestique for a three person female team, even though I could have gotten them around the course without any trouble. That's just not how they thought there at that time. And so I had to can that idea because it was just not going to be fast enough. So then I decided to do 70.3, the half Ironman distance. 
And I started, I got pretty darn good at that. I, you know, won a couple as a professional and um, was having some fun, I guess. Um, And then from there, I did like throughout that time, though, again, I just had like the seriousness of a monk. And like, I was so focused and dedicated um, to just getting and eking out every single aspect of my performance. But I had no idea what that actually entailed. I just didn't know. I didn't, I had no idea that you it did. It just didn't take grit. It didn't, it just, it, it doesn't take, it takes so much more than grit. It takes so much more than a positive attitude. It takes so much more knowledge about things like nutrition and um, the, the recovery wasn't now we talk about recovery, like it's the you know fourth part of triathlon and, and probably as important for running. And, but it wasn't talked about then, at least not in the circles that I lived in. Right. And yeah, so, not in the same ways. We've definitely learned a lot from that perspective, especially for that pro athlete. Oh yeah. And and then, you know, I had just been drilling. I I think I carried from being a synchronized swimmer all the way throughout that I was never quite light enough. And again, like coaches didn't know, doctors didn't talk about and it would be like power to weight, power to weight. You don't have your period. No problem. Like just keep pushing. Like it's okay. Your body. (laughs) So I, you know, was suffering from injuries after injuries and, um, still just going after this, you know, goal, but I didn't, there, all the red flags were there, but nobody saw them because we didn't talk about it. And we still don't talk about it nearly what it, you know, needs to be talked about, but I was definitely, um, low energy availability, like way low energy availability and i you know really suffered from the the all the problems that that brought up so and i again was just shoving down so there it's like i did i didn't trust myself enough because i didn't have the knowledge that i didn't have i didn't know what those red flags were so it's not that i blame myself it's not that i you know you, you like you're swimming in the pool you're just swimming in the culture of eating salads after massive rides. <laughs> it seems so stupid now, right. but that's what was done. That's what was modeled. That's what was, you know, and then you don't have to look far. It's also, I think it's interesting in the triathlon world because it is coaching can often be a team sport and that you might be getting certain advice on cycling and swimming from one place and then running from another place and nutrition from another place. And so it, it isn't the same in a sense that you don't necessarily have a single coach who understands all elements of your training. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that as an athlete yourself and really take ownership. Well, that's, I mean, that leads me to what I'm doing now because now I see it. Now I demand that of myself to help my athletes to do it. And to understand that I don't have to be the, the best, like I did end up taking a nutrition degree at Simon Fraser University because I was so confused about it. I was like, there is something wrong here. <laughs> and even then, um, I've learned so much since, you know, going forward. And that's because a whole field of nutrition has shifted in their knowledge. 
So we can't look back with the glasses that we have now. Like we can't look back and be like, oh, had I only knew because no one knew. We, you know, it's nice to, for us to kind of say, oh, well, it's your coach should have known. Well, they it didn't have, it wasn't. Well, we, yeah, we were stuck in this paradigm that weight and performance were linearly correlated. And it's still pervasive in the in running and in, in all sport. I mean, we are understanding, starting to understand. But I did a podcast recently on race weight, and the title was "The Myth of Race Weight" because this idea that you have one single weight at which you can perform your best and therefore should manage to it is actually completely backwards. And my thought, or my thesis in that podcast was that we really shouldn't even be using weight as a as a measurement to guide performance but rather focusing on the inputs to make sure we're well fueled properly trained balancing stress and rest and so forth and so it's but it's but honestly I got a lot of feedback on that that I had it wrong and so it's still people are still changing their perspective on that so what did you learn about that topic specifically. I know we're talking about failure here, but mm -hmm. I think it's important to bring up these things when they when they come up that you know you have to fuel in order to have success. You have to have a normal period. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's it. Like that's how I that's how I coach now. It's it's like, okay, what are the markers of health? Who what do we need to be to be in health? And my focus is on uh, women now um, and girls and to understand what is, so our vital sign of health for girls and women is the period. If That's assuming that you're still getting a period. Now, of course, we look at different life cycles and as you go into perimenopause, it starts to elongate. And so it's not the normal cycle. But if we are in a re regular, you know, cycle, then if you're not getting it, there's a problem. There's a problem because that's your number one sign. So the challenge that we have and the challenge that we had was that you just go onto the pill. And when you are at that level of performance, I would argue that that is exactly what you should not do is go onto the pill. Because if you're not certain that you're getting enough, then you have no business messing up with that. And I, I mean, I can't link, and I don't think science has linked the problems of when, you know, what we put our body through is, body through as athletes in the younger years to what ha actually happens to your body when you try to, you know, with fertility. But I can assure you that I went through two years of trying to have babies and luckily it ended up in a positive way for me. But I know it's because my body was so messed up from years and years of not getting my period and from underfueling and from not um, really supporting it in a healthful way. Not everybody will want to have babies. That's not the point. The point is, is that how are we supporting the longevity of living fully in, in our lives? So the question isn't even about what is our race weight. I think we got the wrong, I mean, it is because it's the topic of it, but, and right. so looking at it, but what is it that we can be healthfully doing? And the question is if we can actually allow ourselves to be in that 
position on when we're eking out performance. So the argument would be if you are at the very, very, very pointy, pointy end of performance, can you be healthful and still be the one that crosses that finish line? For me, like not everybody's going to be there. And, but to me, health is more important than crossing that finish line in first. So for me, looking at every Olympian, I would say, if you are in health and you cross that finish line first, you won the jackpot on everything. You won the jackpot on mindset, nutrition, training, and recovery because you've got it all. But there are going to be so few people. Is it worth it for other you know, athletes to get to that extremely pointy end by comp- like by playing that we talk about it as a gray zone we talk about it in in a way that it's like well you know you know you have to do sacrifice i don't know i don't think that there's ever been a a a real long-term study (laughs) of keeping athletes fully healthy and getting to the pointy end i think we're so willing to throw people under the bus and i was that person i was that gritty I was that, I had that much desire to get to the best. And, you know, I, I had a, I interviewed Heather Wirtel and uh, for a series that I'm doing right now. And Heather Wirtel is a, was a professional triathlete that she, she laughed and after the, the interview, she said, you know, Tanil, I never got publicity because I was way too boring. She won 25 iron, half Ironmans, top of the podium. Like she was on more podiums than I don't even, like, I don't know. She won 10 Ironmans. She was on the world championship podium three times. And she did not get a whole lot of publicity. She didn't have broken bones. She just had a regular period. <laughs> like, that was phenomenal. And so it's like, what is it, what are we willing to allow? And what is it that we're consuming as well? Because it sure looks good when we have a comeback story, but coming back from what, if you're healthy all the time, (laughs) right? Being healthy is boring. Being healthy is totally (laughs) boring. So, and I'm not saying that that's always the story. We love, you know, like we love champions, like this kind of, but we love a comeback story too. Yeah. But where is that comeback story coming from? And was it coming from a place of of health to start with? So give me the cliff notes on how you advise women to stay in that place while also seeking performance because it is a tightrope, right? Yeah. So I where I start is let's first make sure we understand how your body works and let's start really understanding um, as best as possible because that body's never going to stay the same either. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep getting older. And so let's understand how, I think what often gets lost, I'll just say this quickly is that when you're talking about performance or this can be for anybody, you and you're getting out, you're putting your lacing up your shoes and you're getting out the door and you're motivated to do it. You want to keep going. You want to get to that start line. 
And what we fear sometimes is that we're going to, that, that motivation is going to go away. Right. So let's just assume that we're going to keep going no matter what, right? Like we, let's assume that we want to keep getting to that start line. So when we are healthy, we're motivated. We keep going because we're in a positive frame of mind. We can't stay positive. Things like are just get emotionally difficult when we need more recovery. So um, just drawing again on what Heather Wirtel says in this interview, she slept 10 hours a night, minimum. She was just like, I just knew I needed a lot of sleep. <laughs> she understood her baselines. And I think that's where we start. Where are our, what are our baselines to know? And we're so lucky now. We have all these tracking tools. I've got an aura ring. I love it. You know, and we have like, yeah, you, you guys, she just yeah, showed me, me her aura yeah. ring. It's so yeah, perfect, right? I, I dig out on this stuff. So as long as we don't become obsessive about it and, and use it as a performance tool in itself, but we can learn about things now in a different way. So let's start with health and understand what keeps us happy. Because otherwise, what the hell are we doing it for? Like if it's not bringing us joy and we're not thriving and we're not being in the communities that we want to be, if we're not growing, then what are we doing, right? And so then from there, because we're interested in getting to the pointy end, we push because we love to push and we pull back. And But it's always in a very deliberate way. And particularly for women, I, I, I guess what we have to, we you know, like we're talking about, yeah, but where are you finding those seconds? Well, I, you know, again, we, I was just listening to Kristen Armstrong in an interview and she said, you know, I wasn't going to leave a second out on the table. So drill work, going around a corner, going around a corner, going around a corner. So that there's so much we can do to find the pointy end when it becomes fitness. And um, like if that's beyond fitness. So first find health, then start being curious. What makes you tick? The other thing I didn't realize as an athlete is I have certain strengths. I had no business doing certain courses like because I just wasn't meant to do those courses or I could have done those courses and taken, you know, a two year process to say, I'm going to nail this course because I'm going to work on my body composition, my strength, how I tackle it, having the confidence, like say it was a really hilly course or something like that. Um, then, you know, I could have done it differently, but understood something about myself as athlete so that you can go forward with that. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And then, you know, as you said, you got to push, test, learn, pull back, push again. Cause sometimes ultimately you're going to go over Yep. The line, right? That's going to happen. You're going to get injured. You're perhaps for women sometimes going to lose your cycle in a window. But if you yeah. recognize that as a sign that you've done something beyond and yeah. pull back and learn from it and then reset, then it becomes that part of that baseline again of, okay, now I understand how this works. So I'm going to incorporate that knowledge into the baseline and then push yeah. in a different way. Yeah. So it's iterative, yeah. which I think also relates back to failure, which you know, failure becomes an iterative process if you're doing it right. Yeah. 
I think that you, you had mentioned it um, earlier too, and that is the emotion part that I would say that we in sport haven't explored nearly enough. And that is to fully embrace, fully embrace absolutely every emotion that we can that we're having to uncover it, to not shove down, but to be like, I am so angry or I am so sad. And then be like, just sit there, just sit there with it because it is telling you something, right? And if we understand that, if we can use it, uh, you know, the, the emotions as our guide, well, actually the emotions are not our guide. The values are our guide. So, you know, if you're starting to go off the deep end in your training, and you start to get miserable, angry, sad, depressed, then be like, well, am I, am I aligned with what I'm trying to do with what my values are? And if you're not, that's pretty, get back on track, but you're right. It's the push and pull, Chris. Like it's the, you're, you're in the process. You're in the, the growth. It's the growth mindset. And, um, there's one other thing I'd say about the failure part is that at some point I thought, oh, well, we, we want to like redefine failure. No, we want to absolutely say, hey, how did I fail? Like, where, where are my failure points? And it, it is the embracing of failure as the place where we get to learn entirely. So take me to the moment you realized you would never make an Olympic team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I decided to do a 10 K it was the worst 10 K to try to do it, um, uh, to try to get my time to get onto the national team. And it was a bad 10 K because it was a trail, like any road runner <laughs> knows not to try to get a per personal best on a trail. <laughs> it was a hilly course, but I just needed to do it. I just needed to get it over with. And so A, didn't set myself up for success, did I? Um, just got over a cold. Like everything was just telling me not to do it, but it was, I had already, I'd already decided, I suppose. And we should also set the context that you're doing ITU. That's right. Triathlon to make an Olympic team. So you have drafting on the bike, which dramatically changes the emphasis that the run takes. Obviously, the run's always important in a try, but in that type of environment where you can draft on the bike and the packs tend to stay together, it can become all about the run. So that's why it became so important for you. Yeah. Well, and it was kind of funny at that time because I was such a strong cyclist. Um, I would just, I wouldn't care what my competition was doing with their whole like drafting. I just take off. <laughs> I just go. I had no, I just had guts. And nice. so I knew I just had to get as much time as possible on the bike. So I'd be like, okay, you either are with me or you're not, but I'm not going to sit here with you. So later. You got to come get me on the run. <laughs> come, come find me on the run. And maybe I'll, my biggest claim to fame is that I beat Gwen Jorgensen. I think it was in 2010. And um, yeah, it was before she learned how to bike, obviously. <laughs> Gold medalist Gwen Jorgensen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I'm just like, I love that photo because I'm like, yeah, yeah, I had it. There you go. Yeah. Point. <laughs> yeah, but it was true. Like it was before, um, you know, it was I was cocky enough to think that I could get away from everybody on the bike. And at, at one level of competition, I could. 
and I didn't make it to the next level. But in any case, um, I so forgot. Trail ten k. The trail. Yeah. Tell us the, about the trail ten k. Sorry, I interrupted that story. Yeah, no, the trail ten k. Well, I I just did it, and then I I finished it. I didn't get my time, and my sister had decided to do it too. It was a total community race. It was great, and um, my sister had it, and so I ran back. I got her, and then we crossed the finish line together. And um, I said, okay, went home, called my coach. I said, okay, so now we're doing 70.3. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was it. it. That was it. Got to move on. Next goal. But, but at some point you had to stop and internalize this, right? I mean, at what point did you stop chasing and realize, wait a minute, I just need to face all of this pent up striving? I think that came... Um, when I much, much later, I still was very much in the the point of my life in which I just clammed down and just went, kept going. And that stopped um, when I had my first son. That I knew I was in a really um, challenging number of years in the work environments that I wasn't, let's just say I wasn't thriving in. I was just too pig headed and, you know, just so driven and didn't understand much. Um, and was coming from a performance competition is performance mentality. And I knew I was so far off the rails and I was in a, um, my husband provided me with such a strong and solid base that it was the first time in my life I could really explore my emotions. And it what allowed me to f- be fully engaged with them. And then I started coming out of all of it. And it was hard. That must have been intense. It was I mean, intense. More it than was really intense. three decades of shoving it down. And it all comes out and you're facing it. So tell us about that. How was it to face those emotions? I remember coming home from work and crying every night. I remember not thinking I was good enough. I remember thinking I had no confidence in what I was able to do anymore. Like, who was I? I tried so hard at work and everything I did wasn't working. I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. And um, and I was like, I'm a good person. Like, what is wrong? There's everything is wrong. And I, um, it was so challenging. And then I, um, I actually did a, a three day course. Uh, it's through Landmark. And I learned something so incredibly valuable there and that the past didn't have to define me anymore. And that I was constantly getting pay, like I was getting a payoff, um, from striving. Like I was making my whole worth based on what I was accomplishing and I was accomplished obviously. And, um, you know, tons of letters behind my name, you know, awards, medals, whatever. And so I was getting something, a payoff for that, but it's still, I always was just not being able to be enough in any of it. And I didn't want to pass it on to my son. So I had, I had me high 
And I, I wanted him to know that he was enough. And so I started the personal journey, the counseling, um, figuring out where I was truly happy and what I could do in this world, how I could bring and have an impact in this world. And um, it came down to being really some really basic things, and that is to be present. And, um, and you know, Viktor Frankl's quote, I'm going to get it wrong, but, you know, the space between the stimulus and the response is where, where your growth lies in the freedom, something like that. And that lives with me every day because if we are like, if I am present, if I'm truly trying to be present, then I'm not worried about the next step because those next steps, that's the 1%. That's the next, that's the habit that you're creating. That's the, the little piece that you're going to get your performance. And the next step is always going to come. <laughs> it's just like, it's the future. You've created the possibility already, but who knows, right? Who knows what's going to happen? You have no impact on what anybody else does, particularly, I mean, races are so perfect for this because you have no idea what else is going to happen. So I had to start living my life like that. And, um, and that is what brought me to doing what I'm doing now. And I am on a mission. <laughs> now I'm on a mission, but with a completely different perspective and a different way of being in it. Because I still have to catch myself all the time, not to just strive for the outcome glory, right. <laughs> you know, not strive for the top of the podium when I make it someday, one day out there, you know, reaching beyond. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's I'm having an awesome conversation with somebody, you know, that we were in contact nine years ago and this is where I'm at right now. And what can be the impact right now for somebody who might be listening? So let's dig into your lessons on failure from, mm -hmm. from striving for those outcome goals. What do you tell people? What are the top two or three things that you tell people about embracing it? Because it's not just dealing with it or learning to let go. I mean, it's actually using it as a tool. Yeah. And so what would be your lessons? Well, I think there's, um, the, I guess, <laughs> what I want to say is one thing, one thing that it's not like one thing that failure is if you're embracing failure, you are, you're not shutting down the emotions and just becoming relentlessly positive. Embracing failure is actually really embracing all of you. The second point is. To By the way, I want to linger there for a second because okay. that's what the, the, I wrote down my own lessons too. So, I, you know, I would have those as notes. My number one was feel all the feels. Oh, I love it. Because it's, you can't move on from failure unless you mourn the loss of whatever outcome you were seeking. And it's not unlike mourning the loss of a person in your life. Yeah. Obviously that is a different scale, but the, the, elements are still the same in terms of how you need to process and move on from that type of loss. 
And so you have to mourn the loss. You have to feel all the feelings. You have to be sad. You have to cry the tears. You have to be angry or frustrated or whatever happens to bubble up. Because unless you process those things fully, you can't really learn after that and use that failure in a positive way. No, and it'll just stay there until you actually do go and process it through. And it may it may stay there and it might metastasize physically in illness. Right. You, and I'm not like I'm careful by saying that, but you know, because it doesn't always look like that. But you know, yeah, it'll stick with you and it'll show up in hairy places and scary places. Yes. Yeah. So feel the so, feels. Feel the feels. Totally feel the feels. Um, the second one is it becomes a really a big part to trust yourself that you are enough and that you're, it's just where you're at. Like I didn't trust myself that I was enough of whatever. I wanted to prove that I was enough. It, it's this proving ability rather than being totally lovable. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't define you is actually what I wrote down. The failure doesn't define you. It's a thing that happens. You could yeah. say it happens to you or you could just say it. it's a thing that happens, but yeah. it doesn't define you. It doesn't define your worth. No, 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 totally. And it doesn't, if it happened, if something happened in the past, it's just what happened. It doesn't say a thing about the possibility for your future. Right. That, Another way it's an say. interesting, I, I often think, and my 12 year old actually is a model for this for me. Mm-hmm. I often think that Nirvana as a competitor, as someone who's striving for an outcome, is when you can give everything you have to something as competitive as you might be to try to get it. And then when it happens, whatever happens, whether you get it or don't get it, you know, you can process your lessons and just move on without. You know, mm-hmm. without somehow carrying baggage with it. And my 12 year old, he's a, he plays soccer as his primary sport. He's a goalkeeper and really good at it at 12, which is weird because I was terrible as a goalkeeper. I was too afraid <laughs> of the ball, but he's a fearless keeper. And part of what makes him good is that he's really competitive, hates to lose. But when he loses or when he gives up a goal, he processes it and moves on. Like it doesn't stick with him. You know, he gives up a goal in a game. It happened, whatever. I learned from it. I can do something different next time. But then he moves on and he doesn't hold on to those things, which is amazing because I feel like it's it's living exactly what we're talking about here, which is that it's just a thing that happened. The goal went in. Okay, what can I learn from that goal going in and yeah. move on into the next? Because, it, you know, if you let it linger in your head, then that will affect the next part of the game or whatever it may be. Well, we'll need to have a podcast on that, on how do you teach a 12-year-old to, like, what did you do? Like, I'd be so curious. Like, what did you do? I didn't you teach do? him anything. I didn't teach him anything. <laughs> well, he obviously, just is that way. Yeah, but it's environmental too, right? So he's allowed to fail. He's, he's in an environment that's allowed to fail. You know, right. And it, it would it. be interesting to digest exactly what elements of that are intentional versus accidental and how we could recreate that because it's different from my 10 year old. who's not a goalkeeper, but he also plays soccer, but he also tends to hold on to things. 
mm. plays in the same club, plays, you know, the same system, same two parents. And yet he approaches it differently. And again, it's not better or worse, but he tends to hold on to things a little bit more. And that's something I'm trying to work with him on. on. But anyway, it's interesting. But yeah, going back to this point. Right. It's I've an outcome. It's not something yeah. that defines you. Yeah, that's right. What else? Okay. Number three. One thing that I got I got really confused is that I can like didn't understand excellence versus mastery. And so like we I talked about earlier, like excellence being the podium, blah, blah, blah. Whereas mastery is the ability to continuously move in in the process of learning, of growing, of and that is it mastery is always the next step and to be in that space like if we if i think of it within my business now it's that i'm never going to arrive and i'm super excited about that because there's so much to grow in and to learn and i didn't have that same sort of a- attitude in my sport and because it was there was a f- a place i needed to go and if we if we let go of the top of the podium as our way of being excellent and we're more after the mastery of whatever it is that we're doing, then we have more freedom too. And to me, that was really, I mean, that's what's exciting is that I can screw up all the time now. Now, hopefully I don't do it too much. (laughs) And I certainly don't like, this is what I take with my athletes. It's okay. Well, how do we learn together? I'm going to bring my A game to you and stay on top of all the stuff that I can, you know, coaches having to be, I'll bring their A game on so many levels and seek the, the, the advice of the experts in each of those places. Um, but it's a definite conversation because I will never know your body athlete as well as you need to know it. Yeah. So you're talking about embracing the journey. Mm-hmm. When I talk to runners about, about it after a race, I might, well, I might say, well, what would you have done differently? Had you gotten the time you wanted versus not getting the time you wanted? Usually it doesn't look very different. <laughs> it's like, well, I would have kept training for the next goal <laughs> either yeah. way. And yes, there's lessons, but, and, and interestingly, there's lessons in a good race, a quote, good race where you get the time you want. And there's also lessons in a race where you didn't get the time you want. So either way you're processing those lessons and you're moving on to the next thing. If you love the journey, then you're just right back to it in a different way. Yeah. And embracing that is a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about digging out those lessons, though? Because I do think there's something magical is not the right word, but there is some art to figuring out the lessons from failure. So what do you think about when you think about that part of the process? Digging out the lessons of the failure? Yeah. Um. It's just, I guess, I guess I can't even, I'm trying to get my head around what that is, is to me, 
I, when I fail now, the, the process is, is can I be, have enough compassion to myself to allow myself to be there and to say, it doesn't define you. <laughs> it's, it, it's just what happened. And to, if there's a wrong that I have made to own up and to claim that wrong. And if there's something I can do different to know that I can do different and, and to let, if, you know, if you're in a relationship or if you're in a race or if you're whatever it is to keep being right there in the present. So for me, it's again, just coming down to the most important thing is, are you present? Are you, are you able to take on what you're taking on and being okay with exactly that? the perfect moment that it is. Does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> it, 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 it does. I mean, you're, you're ultimately talking about being kind to yourself. And I think if I were to summarize, maybe not overanalyzing either, right. You're not, you're not digging too deep into it, overthinking it, because if you do, that can start to spiral into a negative place. I think one of the things for me is learning to separate what's circumstantial from what I could actually have affected and changed. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the bigger failures, you know, that I think about as a runner was a race that I did. I think it was four or five years ago. And we went to this race in in Michigan, actually, with a big group of us trying to get a, a personal best for me, an Olympic trials qualifier for one of my teammates. And it didn't happen. We all ended up running several minutes slower than we wanted to. And we're just beating ourselves up about it, trying to overanalyze every single element of our training. And in the moment, we didn't just step back and say, you know what? It ended up being 75 degrees that day. It got too hot. That's why our times were slower. It wasn't actually that we did anything wrong. If the weather was 45 degrees instead of 75 degrees, we probably all would have nailed it because we were actually pretty darn close anyway. And it took a little bit of time and perspective to be able to step back from that and say, you know what, that actually is one of my best races ever because I was able to do what I did in those conditions. And I still think that may actually be my finest marathon, even though in the moment I was just overanalyzing every element and not really giving enough credit to the circumstances versus the quote unquote mistakes I thought I had made. Yeah, I think it's so important. I have this little circle here of, and like, so what we know, right, is, and I'm like, think of a big swimming pool and then think of this like one molecule of water, (laughs) like this one little piece of it in the whole pool. That's what we know is that one tiny little bit. And all the circumstances or all the other pieces around us is, is and this happens like with our own knowledge. So we, we judge ourselves based on what we currently know, but yet there's so much that we don't, and we don't even have the question. So at the, you know, your ability to get perspective from that race was because you re- you knew to say, oh, what was the weather? Oh, it was really hot. Well, that does mean slower times. People don't even know that. They don't think, oh, my nutrition has to change. Everything has to, like, there's 
it's environmental factors that change. Just like people don't know to ask the question about how to recover well or when to recover or what are those signals are. What are things that are attributable to specific female physiology? Why can't I hit that VO2 max workout right before my period? We are just starting to, you know, and this is, I encourage you to find your, you have to learn it yourself if your coach doesn't know yet. That's the thing, right? But we just have these little, little bits of knowledge and, and we don't even know what the swimming pool is full of. Right. And so if we're not c- kind to ourselves and compassionate, you're right, we're going to really start coming into a story of I didn't, you know, have a very good race. And, and, right? And it may not be the story even. And it's not the story. But I think, so it's important to me in analyzing that the post, the post race kind of analyze, analyzing our post event analyzing is saying, okay, what were the circumstances? How did those contribute? What are the lessons I can take that based on what I know? And I also encourage people to, to consult with people outside of themselves. You need perspective. Mm. This is where a coach is important. Because as a coach, I I can take fully objectively look at something and say, here's the situation based on all my experience. These are the lessons I would take versus if you're the athlete yourself trying to do it, it's hard to separate some of those things out. So get perspective. Another thing I like to talk to people about is giving yourself opportunity to just fail more. You know, I, I tell people all the time when I, when I, line up for a marathon I'm every single time. And I've lined up 20 times for 20 marathons, done over 150 races. Every single start line, I'm nervous. There's anxiety every single time. It never goes away. I have taper madness every single marathon. <laughs> and, and that doesn't go away. It doesn't change, but I get better at dealing with it. And I think failure is the same in a sense that if you give yourself those opportunities to to fail in a safe environment, then it teaches you things and you become better at processing it, dealing with it, separating the emotion from the lessons. And so I encourage people to find opportunities, maybe just to fail in a way that is lower risk, so to speak. So trying that prep race, you know, six weeks out from a marathon where you can try some things, test some things, and then see what happens, maybe fail, maybe not, but it's, but the stakes are lower. So you're able to learn from it a little bit more easily than when the stakes are high. Absolutely. Yeah. Know the the push and the pull. I think that it's important. And this is, I mean, just to come back to Rogue and what I was able to be there, like when I was there and in the environment is and what I loved and ha- haven't, re- you know, there's not that many places like it. Um, is that it was a place that lifted people up and get your, get your community that's going to lift you up and be there at the finish line and, you know, remind you that you were there and there's not a lot of people like we think when we're in and immersed in our culture of runners or triathletes or whatever, we think that that's what everybody does. But I can assure you, it is not what everybody does. And that you 
getting to a start line and putting yourself out there, just like you said, is like you got those nervous jitters every single time. It doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete or not. It is that excitement and is that you have courage to get there. And you get to do it by looking to the right and looking to the left and there's your community. And it's the most powerful thing we get to do. And I hope we get to do a lot more of it really soon. Because COVID no doubt. <laughs> put a damper no on doubt. it. <laughs> it is powerful. There's an interesting side product of, of having a loving and supportive community, though, that I think sometimes manifests in this failure conversation, which is that sometimes we take that support and we turn it into a burden because we start to worry about what everyone will think when we run a certain way or get a certain time or mm-hmm. don't get the goal that we told everybody we were going to get. And it's it's amazing how much fear we attribute to that, even though every single time you actually miss, all you get is love. <laughs> it's at least in, in our world at Rogue, I mean, that's all I ever see is people just pouring out love when someone doesn't quite get what they want. And so I think it's an important reminder to people that don't let that community support turn into a burden in your mind because it's 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 not that. It's it's only love flowing your, in your direction, not any sort of expectation that you should carry with you in a way that weighs you down. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how quickly we turn that's all our own story. It's right. all our own story. It has nothing to do with anybody. It's all our own fears. Exactly. You hit it right on the head. It's our fears about not being enough. Like, I guess to my second point, like that was, it was that I felt like I had to live up to something. I, I, because then they would know, then they would really know how much I appreciated them. Well, they already know. Like, I didn't have to put myself through. You didn't have to make an Olympic team to prove to anyone anything. Or, or to myself, like that I was still, no matter what I did, I, I mean, I still have, and, and that's what's so freeing now. I mean, isn't it great to be a little bit older? <laughs> Wisdom comes. Yes. <laughs> I, finally, I finally knew. But yeah, is that we can be in that, that place of freedom to truly be in it rather than just think of what it is that we do. You're good enough, no matter what. You will be loved no matter what. Repeat after me. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone listening. Those are the really the two lessons, right? I mean, those are the two things. You're good enough and you will be loved no matter what happens. If you can just embrace those two things, then failure failure will be nothing that will ever challenge you. Again, yeah. (laughs) But it's hard, but it's hard. And so I do think what you mentioned about how this is, you know, you're in a better place now. You've gotten different perspective, but it's still something you have to face. You know, that devil on your shoulder jumps on, I'm sure, periodically and says, Tennille, you you know you want this because it will prove to what you know, whatever, that oh. you're worthy. It's still there, but you have better tools now. Oh, it's totally there still. Totally. But you're right. I have I now know it's just this little monkey that sits on my shoulder and just be like that that chatterbox and I'm just like oh there you are again I acknowledge and just be like yeah no I'm not gonna listen to you today (laughs) and 
because you know that that's a story that we have to continuously i say we but i i'll say i have to continuously like please i can do this i am good enough i don't have to have another accolade behind my name <laughs> you know talking like i just kept on striving for more and more and more because i was constantly in this game but not anymore i i'm, I'm just on a mission now <laughs> so yeah so last question then we'll wrap Obviously, one part of dealing with failure after you feel the feels, process your lessons, is move on to the next, right? Turn the page, find that next race to go after where you might get the outcome that you want. Mm -hmm. But there's a fine line of rushing into that and and burying something and risking maybe not a fully, pro fully processing what has come before, while also still a necessity of needing to move on, needing to turn the page as a part of moving on from failure. So what tips do you have for that part of the process, for that next goal to go after? Um, I, I honestly, like I have a motto, like what I say to myself, if I have to kind of listen to that voice is that, wherever you are right now is perfect. And so if you, for example, you know, somebody like hear this all the time. Oh, well, I went to sign up for the race and then it was full <laughs> or I, I wanted to do this, but then I couldn't because I didn't have the money or, or, or right. Like you, we put in these barriers or these ideas or whatever, all these, this lineup of stuff. And if those things are happening to me is I, I take it and I say, I'm right here right now. And it's perfect. And it's because that's where I'm supposed to be. And when the door is going to open, I'm going to open the door or I have to move to the right to find the open door and that I trust myself enough and that I, I'm in the right spot to see it. Sometimes we don't always see it. And that's because we're not ready for it. Or because there's something that we still need to digest from it. And like how many times, for example, you know, I wanted a baby so bad. Like this is taking it out of the sport context, but this one that's just coming in my head. I wanted a baby so bad. And, you know, fertility treatment after fertility treatment after fertility treatment. And then finally it worked. And it was the perfect time for it to work. It wasn't going to be eight or nine months beforehand when I was still dealing with so much my own emotional baggage. You know, like if you look back on your life and you start thinking about how all of those things are you're navigating through, you go, wow, it kind of worked out. <laughs> like now I see. And how many times do we say that? And again, we're like, I'm coming from a place of privilege. And a lot of privilege. So I acknowledge that. But it also, you know, if I can remember that, all right, it didn't work out this time. I still have, I haven't got the message right, or it's not resonating, or I haven't listened. I, I, I need to keep moving forward because it's not that it's about me. It's actually about something that I need to keep doing. It's not a reflection of me. It's something that I get to keep learning. That's the mastery. Yep. So it's perfect right where you are. That's my, that's the, the answer is keep going, but don't regret, like don't sit in the past, keep going. Okay. Well, maybe it's not, it, it happened. It's not 
what I was meant to do. Okay, what are you meant to do? Go after that. And if that didn't work, okay, well, there's something else there for you. And it's <laughs> not the right there. time. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and that's why I think this exercise, at least for me, of thinking back, and I actually wrote down four things in my life that I would consider my biggest failures. But it was a hard thing to answer because, again, in hindsight, now having 10, in some cases, 20 years to process, mm -hmm. I look back on those things very differently. And in the moment, they were devastating and tore me up. And I thought something was wrong with me and, and or I did something wrong and I needed to learn. And, and yet I got through it, kept moving forward. And now if I look back, I'm thinking, man, it was, I'm glad that happened in some cases. Mm -hmm. that it put me where I was supposed to be, or that taught me the thing that I needed to learn in order to get to something else, which was bigger. So it's interesting when, if we do that, take that exercise, then it helps you, I think, in a moment now where you might be facing something, it helps you keep perspective. Yeah. Stay present, zoom out, <laughs> allow yourself to zoom out to the bigger picture. Yeah. Because I you're right, it is the journey ultimately is that's the magical part, not the destination. Yeah. I was, I was so lucky that I had a, a mentor, have a mentor, Silken Lauman, And she said, you have no idea how the pieces will fall together, but they will to Neil. And this is when I was at a really low point and I would not be able to do what I'm doing now. Had I not had <laughs> many, many failures, the many personal experiences that I get to talk about now daily and impact hopefully many people's lives with what I'm doing. And to me, that's worth it. Cause we're like, I'm on a mission to change the culture for women in sport and, um, and for girls in sport. And that's so powerful. And I get to be part of that conversation and pulling together all of those pieces that I didn't know. Yeah. And part of being there is the lessons you've learned from the quote unquote failures, but were they really failures if you learn something that now contributes to the journey? So it is, yeah. it is all interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll finish just reminding people that you are enough and you'll be loved no matter what. I, love it. <laughs> I think those are my <laughs> big takeaways, but this, <laughs> but this has been awesome to you. So cool to catch up after, not really being in touch for a long time and yeah. sharing sharing this bond over teaching athletes how to embrace failure. So thank you so much for taking the time. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. And let people know what you've got going on. You, you're on a mission. So what's the mission and what do they need to know about? I've got two missions. Uh, the one that's really exciting, which also Rogue is a part of, well, Ruth and Jennifer are part of, um, is that I will be launching next week a perimenopausal athlete and beyond masterclass series. And what it is, is it's over 20 interviews and we just get into it all about um, training and nutrition and recovery specifically for your unique body. And so it is all like so much of what we've learned about it. It's like, how do we talk to the expert? What do we need to know so that we can keep going and keep running long into our lives 
and also deal with a lot of the the physiological things that are are shifting in our bodies and to start understand oh these are the symptoms <laughs> oh this is what's going on and know that we don't have to suffer so that's one thing I'm super excited about because I'm in the midst of it and um, Ruth and Jennifer are going to be interviewed for that series so definitely stay tuned stay on uh, check your emails coming through Rogue because it'll come through and the other thing I'm super excited about is the Resilient Athlete Project. And that's a project in which we are really listening to the stories of um, female athletes that have dealt with failure is one of the issues, um, relative energy deficiency in sport. And the third issue is the abuse of power. And our mission there as a not-for-profit organization is to change the culture of sport for female athletes and to really talk about things that we just don't talk about. We don't know the questions to ask. And we just um, have in the past, let that be the culture. And we need to, we need to change it entirely. And so the way we do that is by sharing and to talking about it. And so, um, that's at the beginning. We just had an event. It was so crazy powerful. And uh, there's a Facebook group, private Facebook group that you can go to for it. It's called the Resilient um, Athlete Project. And yeah, join us if you want to hear stories. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for giving back in those very important ways. And thanks for taking the time, Tanil. Tanil, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Tanil Hoogland, everyone. What a fun conversation. So many lessons embedded in there, not just about failure, but about training and life as well. It was so fun to reconnect with Tennille after it being a little bit of time since I'd actually seen her here in Austin. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks so much to Tennille for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at roguerunning. You can also follow me on Instagram at Rogue Chris if you want to stay updated on my journey. With that, I'll wrap things for this episode and we'll talk to you next week.